Yes, good morning. Good morning, good morning. Yeah, sorry about the technicalities again. We thought this this morning we'd be able to start the show without any glitches, but I guess we we couldn't make it. So, good morning, Bella. Good afternoon. Good morning, Noah. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing good, doing good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a beautiful song. I'm sure we all remember the wonderful memories that uh, Paul Ngozi left for us. Uh, his music, I think, it's music that has stood the test of time. When we think back to those days in the 90s, I think Paul Ngozi is one of the great, great Zambian musicians. So, ladies and gentlemen, today we are going to be tackling a very, very sensitive, a very, very important uh, topic and subject to most of us. Is This is a subject that has affected and touched countless lives across the globe, especially in our country, Zambia, and the rest of the sub-Saharan Africa. So since the 80s, HIV and AIDS has claimed countless lives. So today we are looking at this topic, the subject that has really impacted, uh, I think if you ask almost everyone that you can reach out to, they will tell you they have either personally been impacted or they know someone who has suffered from this disease. So we'll be discussing with a special focus on the United States. Uh, what it means to have HIV, what are the statistics in Zambia, what are the statistics in the U.S. compared to other countries, and uh, in terms of medication, what does it look like? What does one need to have? Where do they need to go? And questions like that. So at any time during our uh, uh, presentation or as this show progresses, feel free to tune in. And if you have a question, you can tune in by pressing one on your phone. That will alert me and I'll unmute your mic. Then you'll be able to ask questions. Yeah, so I see a, a number of people are getting on, jumping on board. So Bella, how, how is Atlanta there? Uh, Atlanta's pretty cold. We had some little snow yesterday that didn't stick, given that the ground was wet and the temperatures were not very cold. But it's fairly colder than we used to here. Yeah, yeah. I think we are having almost the same temperature up here. We had some snow up here in Indiana, but I think so far it's cleared up. But the temperature is very cold here. Yeah, so ladies and gentlemen, again, feel free to press 1 at any time should you have a question or concern. So basically, we'll, we'll look at the numbers of HIV in Zambia. Zambia is one of the countries that has been highly affected with this disease. And when you look at the numbers in Zambia, Zambia has almost 1.2 million people living with HIV. 1.2 million, and when you look at the population of Zambia, Zambia is faring somewhere between 15 to 16 million, I think, during the last census, I think it was somewhere close to that number. But you have over 1.2 million people living with HIV. And you have 11.3% of adult HIV prevalence ages in Zambia ranges from 15 to 49. So the people in Zambia who have this condition mostly range from age 15 all the way to 49. And on average in Zambia, there are about 48,000 HIV cases. And I think on a yearly basis in Zambia, according to the statistics, you are looking at close to 17,000 HIV AIDS related deaths. So those are, I mean, huge, huge numbers. And the good thing, I think, we, what we are seeing in Zambia, of course, close to the 78% of the people who have HIV, uh, I mean, out of the 1.2 million, 1.2 million people with, uh, living with a condition, out of that number, 78% of them, they are taking a viral, their own viral treatment. Uh, antiretroviral 
therapy or treatment, which is a very good thing. So I think the numbers that we don't know, if anybody knows these numbers, feel free to to speak up. Because I don't know exactly the suppression rates are in Zambia. But I think it's good that most of the people who have HIV in Zambia, they have access to medication. And medication, of course, it's free, unless maybe I hear otherwise, because what I know is medication is free in Zambia. So I know, Bella, you have worked in Zambia with uh, an HIV agency. Can you speak a little bit of, about your experience, uh, where you worked when you went to Zambia, and which organization it was, and which area uh, of Zambia, whether it was Lusaka? Just give us a sense of like uh, your past uh, experience with HIV in Zambia. Ah, thank you, Noah. Ah, yes, so my past experience has been with the Emory University School of Medicine. Uh, they have a research project uh, based out of Lusaka and the Copper Belt, and they mostly focus on preventing HIV transmission uh, within couples. So my work for about three years, from 2010 to 2013, 14, was primarily based in the Copper Belt, involved in promoting uh, couples HIV counseling testing services uh, for heterosexual couples. So, so there are instances where a cohabiting or married couple, you may have one partner is HIV positive and the other one is HIV negative. So basically trying to prevent transmission from the positive partner uh, to the negative partner and also just trying to make sure that there's no HIV transmission within uh, a concordant HIV negative population, I mean, couple. So my work basically involved working with the ministries of health and the district health office and going out in the community and promoting uh, the need for couples to come and test uh, for HIV just to prevent uh, transmission within the relationship. And uh, recently I've been more involved in evaluation and providing technical assistance to organizations that want to implement uh, HIV prevention and testing programs uh, within Zambia. But right now the research is showing that adolescent girls, especially those aged 12 to 24, are the highest at risk for HIV transmission uh, within Zambia. And usually what happens is that when these young uh, adolescent girls eventually become married is that they're transmitting the virus to their younger counterparts and the younger counterparts, as they grow older, uh, just given the the dynamics of HIV and uh, poverty, is like the elder men are transmitting HIV to the younger women. So this cycle is now repeating itself. So now we've seen a big shift towards preventing HIV uh, in adolescent girls. And that's been my background and experience with HIV prevention uh, in Zambia. All right, yeah, thank, thank you, Bella, for, for that. So later on in our program, we'll be joined by Dube, Dube, I think it's Dube Sakala. She is the person who is living with HIV, and she's going to come on our show, I mean, later on. She's already on our program. I've just seen the text that she's on. So she'll be give us, giving us a, a little bit insight on how uh, she's handling uh, our day-to-day -day in terms of the stigma and, of course, you know, most of our people in our community and other parts of the the world, the main challenge with HIV has to do with the stigma. So we are encouraging especially <clears throat> people in our community to speak up, to come forward because there's medication. So there's no need for most of our people. I think a lot of people usually reach out to me and they seem to feel uh, uncomfortable talking about this, this, I mean, these matters. So the the more we just keep silent, we don't discuss, we don't talk about these matters, the more the stigma prevails. So it's very, very important for us, I think, as a, as a people to look at HIV as just one of the chronic diseases. Because back in the 80s, when HIV was very much new on the scene, a lot of people looked at this disease as a death sentence. But now when you look at HIV, the advancement in medication, 
the technology, the research that has been done by various institutions, mostly up here in the U.S. with the CDC, I mean, giving grants to and the World Health Organization, I mean, working with the, the other countries just to invest so much in research. So we, we are looking at HIV, especially in the coming few months or years, should be one of the, the just like a regular disease like cancer or heart attack, I mean, a cardiac, <clears throat> cardiac conditions. So HIV is no longer a death sentence. HIV is just like any other disease, so there's no need for our people to feel <clears throat> stigmatized. So let me go ahead and switch to Dube. I don't know if I'm pronouncing du Dube. Okay, my my mic, the technology sometimes is a, it's a challenge. The computer is taking its time. So I see there's a... The number 469 ending 2572. Is that Charles Wendy? 25 ending 2572. Hi, Noah. Oh, okay. It's Namonji. It's Namonji. It's me. Oh, Namonji. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, welcome, Namonji. Yeah, I see our good friend. Our good friend is now connected. <clears throat> Yeah, she said she's on. I've just been chatting with her. Okay, Duba. Duba. Yeah, so so I think I, yeah, I think, I don't know if I mispronounced the name. So the name is Duba. Duba Sakala. Welcome Duba. Duba to the show. Yes. Duba, yes, can you hear me? I don't know what time it is. That's right. Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Oh, yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you for taking time to be on our show. We just wanted you to... Give us a little insight. Here in Indiana, uh, the Midwest is 12:17 p.m. and Central Time. Places like Illinois, Chicago, and Dallas, Texas, it's 11:17. They are one hour behind. And on the West Coast, places like California, Seattle, Washington, it's 9:17 in the morning. So welcome, Duba, to our show. Just just tell us a little bit about yourself so that at least our listeners can get a sense of who you are. Okay. Um, there isn't much to, to tell about Duba. <laughs> I guess all I can say is uh, Duba is somebody that was born in 1976, and uh, she's a mother of two. Um uh, what else can I say about myself? Well, there isn't much to say, but maybe maybe you want me to talk about how I got to find out about my HIV status or how I got to become yeah, so, an advocate, an HIV advocate. Yes, that was going to be my follow-up question because we wanted to make you feel comfortable at least to just get out the first question, like uh, sort of like a tiebreaker. Tell us your name and something unique, and then we go to the hard questions that, hey, Tell us, like, when did you find out? So uh, the floor is all yours. Tell us uh, how, where, where you were when you found out that you were HIV and how you, it sort of uh, affected you or didn't affect you, uh, such questions. Okay. Um, I actually got to find out about my HIV status in 2001, and this was uh, the time when I was, I was supposed to get married, I was engaged, and I was supposed to get married. So the church that I was going to then had advised us to go for an HIV test before we before we got married. And um, my ex-fiancé and I had not been intimate. We had not been sexually intimate. So there was a possibility that either one of us might actually come out positive or we might come out, we might both come out um, negative. We, we didn't really have an idea of who it would be. So we went to CARA counseling then. I think that was the only HIV counseling center that was uh, available at the time. I think before they uh, opened this counseling, uh, VCT centers in, in the clinic. So that's where we went. And he tested negative and I tested positive. And at the time, I really had no idea that I could be positive, even though I must mention that uh, sometime in 1998, I had suffered from tuberculosis, 
but then it was attributed to the fact that um, growing up, I had a very weak chest and I used to get a lot of um, attacks like bronchitis and so on. So we just concluded that probably the TB might also have had something to do with the fact that my chest was quite prone to chest infections. So we just brushed it off. That was in 1998. And then also that well, the other thing that we probably thought was uh, maybe I, I was under a lot of stress because that's the day that my mother also died and I was the one missing her. So they took it that probably I was under a lot of stress and that's why I ended up having uh, tuberculosis. But in 2001, when they told me that, no, I was actually HIV positive, that's when now I looked back and now connected to 1998. Probably even the tuberculosis that I had in 1998 may have been HIV-related because uh, tuberculosis is one of the opportunistic infections that's quite common in people that are HIV positive. So at first when um, I was told about my HIV status, of course I was kind of like in shock. So I didn't really react that much at, at the time. I think I was still trying to digest the fact that I had been told that I was HIV positive, and then in, in, at, at that time, ARVs were not really available here in Zambia in clinics. I think at the, at the time, those um, that were on ARVs had to buy them and at, a, at quite a, a cost. They were not very affordable, so quite a number of people were not able to afford them. So immediately what came into my mind was, well, it means that I just have to wait until I get sick and die because I, I knew that at, at that point I wasn't able to afford ARVs. So I was in a bit of shock, not big, I would say I was actually in, in, in a lot of shock, and I didn't react. So when we went home, because my ex-fiancé then told me, say, no, I think it's best uh, you come to my place so until you cool down, and then that's when I, you can go home. So when we went to his place, uh, he left me alone, seated, and in the sitting room, and I think he went to the kitchen to prepare something to eat, and that's when it really hit me. And that's when I broke down and I started crying. So he heard me and he came back and he tried to comfort me. And he assured me that he was going to stand by me and he wasn't going to leave me despite me testing HIV positive. But as time went by, I think he got a lot of influence from his relatives because um, when I was having my bridal shower in that very year, I got um, a relapse of tuberculosis. So I got very sick and it was evident that I wasn't too well. So his relatives started putting pressure on him and uh, told him, say, no, you need to go for an HIV test with this girl because she doesn't look too well. And because we had already tested earlier on in the year and we already knew our results, I gave him permission to go ahead and tell his relatives about my status. So when he told them that I was HIV positive, they didn't take it too well. So, uh, and then, uh, like I mentioned earlier at the time, HIV then was more like a death sentence. You just have to wait until you get sick and then you die. So to them, they just took it to say, no, this girl probably knew that she was sick and she wanted to infect you, so don't go ahead and marry her. So he mentioned that to me. He told me about it. And then I told him, I said, no, I was just as shocked as you were because I was also finding out for the first time that I was actually positive. Uh, well, he, he, he seems to have believed me that I was finding out for the first time, but the relatives didn't believe that. They thought that I already knew and I wanted to infect him as well. So they were really against the, our union and they put so much pressure on him. And eventually he succumbed to the pressure that was coming from his relatives. And um, he called off the engagement and the marriage in 2002. And that's how him and I went our separate ways. And that's how somehow my journey with HIV began because now I had to go through it alone. Because at first, during that period before his relatives intervened, uh, interfered in our relationship, uh, he was very supportive and he used to assure me that you still go ahead and marry me despite the fact that I've tested HIV positive. But when the relatives uh, interfered in our relationship and he eventually left me, I had to go it alone because now I was all alone. I'd been rejected for being HIV positive and uh, so many things had been said about me by his relatives the fact that um, they suspected that I knew about my status and I wanted to infect him and I wanted to get married to him without letting him know about my status and all sorts of things were said anyway. So that's how from 2002 I had now to go it alone, being HIV positive. But from then I wasn't on medication from the time I found out because as I mentioned earlier, ARVs were quite expensive and I think they only became 
um, available in our government uh, uh, clinics for free. Maybe I think either 2004 or 2005 because I actually started my medication in 2005. Oh, okay. No, thank, thank you, thank you. Uh, thank you for sharing. I know uh, a lot of people are not very confident enough to come forward and just share. So I thank you, thank you for, I mean, just giving us uh, an insight on how uh, your personal life, right? So in terms of, um, so you've been on medication since when? Since 2001? And can you speak a little bit about your viral or defense? I mean, like if you're aware of those numbers. Actually, I've, I've only been on medication since 2005. In 2001, when I found out about my status, I mentioned earlier that ARVs were not given for free in our government institutions. So you had to buy them at a cost. And uh, if you didn't have the money, then you just had to wait until you get sick and die. So uh, 20, I lived from 2001 when I found out about my status. I lived from 2001 without being on medication. Then in 2005, I got a very severe attack of cryptococcal meningitis. Uh, this is an infection of the brain, and uh, it was quite severe that um, I actually almost lost my life. But uh, thank God at the time, ARVs had become really available in government institutions, and uh, they commenced me on ARVs, and that's how come I survived. So I basically started taking my ARVs in 2005 and not 2001. So I've been on medication for, uh, this is 2020, so we're actually talking about 15 years. I've been on medication for 15 years now. And initially when I started taking my medication, I think we had the earlier ARVs that uh, had quite a lot of side effects. So, of course, I had to go through quite a number of side effects from the first medication that I was put on. I can't even remember what medication, but I just remember that there was mesopine in that in that combination that I was taking at the, at, um, at first. Then uh, at some point, I made a mistake and I stopped taking my medication for almost like two weeks because for some religious reasons I was I was fasting at church and I thought no. The ARVs were making me feel hungry and weak, so I didn't want to take them. I stopped taking them for about two weeks. So what I didn't know at the time was that if you stop taking your medication for a certain period of time, you actually develop what they call treatment failure because the medication stops working, and when you start taking it again, it will not respond. Um, the, 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 the virus will not uh, be, uh, respond to the medication that you're taking. So when I started taking the medication again, I noticed that my CD4 count just started dropping. And then I started feeling sick and losing weight. And so when I went to back to the clinic for my medical test, when they tested me, they found that my viral load had actually dropped uh, drastically and um, I wasn't doing too well health-wise. So they asked me if at all I had stopped taking my medication. So I was open enough to tell them that, yes, I did stop, stop taking my medication at some point. And that's when they asked me to do a viral or test. Okay, yeah, yeah, no, thank you, thank you. Yeah, because you see, it's important for people when you are HIV, uh, uh, living with HIV, because I think they write him, because in the past we used to say, Somebody is infected with HIV, so those are some of the ways that I think we in the medical professional public health, we need to uh, sensitize our our people to use the right way. So you don't say somebody is infected with HIV. A positive sound, sounding word is somebody is living with HIV. So that's a huge difference. And then also, you, just like you've all heard, when you take your medication, Everything is fine because HIV is just a regular disease like, I mean, cancer, tuberculosis, and whichever chronic disease is out there. So the key, if you are living with HIV, make sure you stick to your daily arrangement of whatever medication you are prescribed. So, Bella, do you have a question for our guest? Uh, yes, I do have a question. Uh, so you mentioned that uh, the you received the discordant uh, results. That was right before you got married, as I understand it, correct? 
Okay. Uh, I think our guest she has dropped off. So uh, yeah. So <laughs> hold that question, Bella. Okay. And just for him, all those who are listening, your mic uh, they are all unmuted. So if you have to ask a question, feel free just to jump in. And I'm just waiting for our guest to get back on on the line. So just just for those who are listening, when you look at the statistics of HIV compared to Zambia, I mean Zambia and the and the United States here, in the U.S. it's estimated 1.1 million people are living with HIV, and in Zambia it's 1.2 million people are living with HIV. Now a huge contrast: Zambia has about 15 to 16 million people. The U.S. has close to 330, 40 million people. Now, when you look at the percentage of HIV in Zambia, it's somewhere at 14 to 15 percent. The U.S. is less than one or maybe less than two percent of people are living with HIV. So that's a very, very huge, huge gap. And the difference, again, when you look at HIV in Zambia and the, uh, at the United States, in Zambia, of course, we... We find HIV in heterosexual relationships, this male-female relationship, but mostly up in the U.S., HIV is the high numbers of HIV are mostly in the homosexual or gay community. So that's the sharp contrast between Zambia and the, and the, and the United States. And also in Zambia, on average, you are getting new HIV cases like it's 48,000, a country of 15, 16 million, 48,000 people yearly, and the United States, a country of 350 million people, is about 38,500. So the cases of HIV in Zambia are, uh, are very, very, very high. So I think it's, it's up to us as public health professionals to make sure that we are having the discussions like this one today. We want to get the stigma out of the way because stigma is one thing that is affecting uh, a lot of our people uh, not coming forward and things like that. So it appears our guest keeps dropping in and out. So now she's back and um, just trying to unmute the, the mic. I apologize, my computer for some reason is sort of taking its time. So yeah, so Duba, Duba, you are there now, right? Yes, yes, I am. Sorry, I, I, I think I'm having a bit of a challenge with the network. Yeah, 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 I figured. Yeah, so my colleague here, Bella, has a question for you. Go ahead, Bella. Hi, yes, thank you very much for coming on our show. Uh, so just like my background, of course, I've worked with discordant couples uh, in Zambia, like where one partner is HIV positive and the other one is HIV negative. So I was hoping maybe you can give us some additional information or like how your first counseling session went uh, with your partner? Like, did the counselor explain the possibility of you guys having discordant results? And like, can you just like give us a description of how that counseling session was structured and the topics that were discussed, if you remember them? Okay, um, if I can recall very well, I think the, the issue of discordant couples then was not really being addressed very well. I think um, from what I remember, we didn't even have that counseling where like they, would, they tried to like um, talk to us and tell us how best we can live as a discordant couple if at all we were going to go ahead and get married. Because all I remember is after we were tested, all we were told was uh, if you choose, if you want to share your results, you want to show each other results, you can go ahead and show each other the results. And then we left, we were left to go home. They didn't tell us anything about how we can live as a, as a discordant couple. And I think for some reason, that may have contributed to my XTMC not wanting to stick around because we were not given information on how we should live as a discordant couple, if at all we're still going to go ahead and get married. So I think with him not having any information on, on how he can protect himself and uh, how we... But again, um, to be quite honest, then there's also that possibility that if you're HIV positive and your partner is HIV negative, the only prevention you had was condoms. And then... With condoms, you cannot have children. 
So I think for him, unless maybe probably go for IVF, which is, is quite costly, of course. So I think for him, he was also thinking in those lines to say, okay, fine, I, I marry this girl. We'll be using condoms for me to be protected, but how do I have children like that? So maybe that could have been the question mark that he had, and as a result, maybe he thought, well, why, why marry a woman who's not going to give me children? Yes, I can have sex with her with a condom, but it's not going to be able to give me children, and then what's the point? And uh, to be quite honest, I think most of our Zambian men want children in marriage, and we've, we've, we've had quite a lot of women being divorced because they're not able to give their husbands children. So I think for him also... I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to think on his behalf. Maybe he may have also thought about that because really we didn't have that kind of counseling where they counseled us as, as a discordant couple. We just given our results and then we're left to go home. And then that was it. And then I think the follow-up counseling that we had uh, was basically just to ask us whether we were still going to go ahead and get married or not. And but then they still didn't give us any information on how we can have children, despite me being positive, and how he can be protected from being uh, infected. I think we we really didn't have that. I think now they're doing it, but then really I, we didn't have that kind of uh, approach towards discordant couples. Oh yeah, yeah. Duba, thank, my name is uh, Roger yeah. here in uh, Canada. Yes, um, yes. A few questions. Tell us how, how, how it is uh, in 2020 uh, living with uh, HIV uh, in Zambia vis-à-vis uh, -vis those who lived, say, 10, 10 years ago. Um, how is the attitude uh, towards people who have HIV in, in Zambia? Okay. Compared to, like you said, maybe about 10 years ago or maybe in the 90s, I yes. think... There's more people are, are becoming more positive about living with HIV, and mm -hmm. they are not seeing HIV like a death sentence like it used to be back then. Because like back then, I think the the major reason why it was so difficult for people to live with HIV is because they knew that they didn't have any hope of living um, a healthy life or, or living mm -hmm. for a very long time. Because all they knew is once you test HIV positive, all you have to do is wait until you get sick and then you die. But then coming to 2020 now, there's so much that has been done in HIV when it comes to medication, when it comes to even prevention of mother to child, when it comes to even the discordant couple that um, my colleague asked about, about discordant couples and all that. Now we're finding that uh, there are a lot of discordant couples because people now are aware of methods they could use for the negative partner to stay negative and also the methods they could use to have children without the negative partner getting infected. So I'm seeing more people with HIV living more positive lives than me to 10 years ago. But then when it comes to the stigma part from those that yes. are negative, mm -hmm. I think those who have the information, yes, I think they've, they've come to a point where they started accepting people who are HIV positive and uh, do not stigmatize them anymore. Because back then, I think the major issue was HIV was labeled as a promiscuous disease. If somebody was found to be HIV positive, they were immediately labeled as somebody who was, being, who was promiscuous, who used to sleep around and ended up contracting HIV, which was not really the case. Because like right now, I think we have a lot of children who are in their 20s who are born with it. And it was not their fault. Their mothers didn't know then that they were HIV positive. And they gave birth to those children without realizing that they were giving birth to a child that was being born with HIV. So back then, I think there was that label of promiscuity when it came to HIV. But now, I think with so much information on how people get uh, HIV, how people, are able to, uh, how people are able to contract HIV, I think some people are beginning to stop the stigma. But then we still have those people that still somehow still hold on to the views of the 90s, the early 90s and, you know, the early 2000s when HIV was just, you know, being known and so on, who still think that, no, if somebody is HIV positive, then they must have lived a very reckless life and were sleeping around and so on. But I think when we compare the, the way HIV is viewed now and the way it was viewed um, some years back, I think there's really a difference because there's so much information now that has been disseminated and people are getting educated. 
people are getting to understand what HIV is all about, and they're also getting to understand how they can relate to somebody that is HIV positive. So really, I think there is a positive change, and there is some positive outcome from uh, whatever has been, uh, you know, achieved in HIV over the years. And uh, I, I think it's, it's one of the reasons why a person like me can even decide to come out in the open about my status because I know that I will not receive so much stigma from society than back then because back when I came out in the open about my status, I'm telling you I would have probably killed myself by now due to the stigma that I would have received then. But now you find that it's a mixture. There are people that will still stigmatize because they don't have the knowledge. But I think the majority now seem to have the knowledge about HIV, and the stigma seems to have really reduced, and it's not so much as it was back then um, in the 90s and in the early 2000s. Okay, well put. Uh, it is also said, uh, Adura, uh, that um, now people who are taking uh, ARVs, it is not easy. Once someone starts to take care of this, you cannot transmit the disease to um, another person. I don't know how true uh, that is. If that is true, why do you think we are still having uh, transmission of the disease? Why has this not stopped? Okay. Yes. On that one, actually, this is one. This is a fact. It's actually a fact now that uh, when one is undetectable, uh, actually, what 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 we mean by undetectable is that the viral load is undetectable uh, when the, um, uh, the blood is screened under the viral load machine. So there is a campaign that is currently going on. They are calling it UU, which is undetectable, is equal to untransmittable. So meaning that when one has a suppressed viral load, whereby it's undetectable, it means that they cannot transmit the virus to their sexual partner. Uh, through sexual intercourse. So that is a proven fact, and um, it's, some, it's, it's, it's uh, something that now even I think most uh, medical people have actually come to prove that actually you cannot transmit the virus to your sexual partner if you're undetectable. But coming to the issue of why are we still having new infections, I think that comes back to the issue of uh, denial. We still have a lot of people that will, first of all, there are still people that are afraid to go for HIV tests. So those do not know their status. And because they do not know their status, they will continue having different sexual partners. And if, that, if, if, if let's say that person is infected, they will continue to transmit the virus to their sexual partners because they have not yet studied their medication. And then when it comes to denial, you have somebody, probably they have been for a test. They tested positive, but because they're in denial, they do not want to accept the fact that they've been found positive. They will not start taking their medication. And as long as somebody is not on medication, they are, they are um, I would call high risk. They are very infectious because their viral load is very high. And anyone who's not on medication is a very infectious person. So those also will contribute to new infections. And it's, it's, it's quite difficult to contain, um, to control new infections as a result of those two groups that I've mentioned, those who either don't know their status or have not tested for HIV because they're afraid, for the, they're afraid of their known. Most people are afraid to go to the hospital and test for HIV. And also those that are in denial, they may know their status, but because they don't want to start their medication, they'll continue to transmit the virus to people that are HIV negative. And this is the reason why we continue to see new infections, despite the fact that now we have ARVs that will make somebody become undetectable and make somebody not transmit the virus to their sexual partner. So I think in that regard, I would attribute it to these two reasons that I've given. People that don't know their status and people that are in denial. I think these are the two major risk uh, people that uh, are still um, transmitting the virus to people that uh, are negative. Yeah. My last question, oh, uh, Noah, yeah. uh, to uh, mm. is uh, the new program the government brought in. If you go to the hospital with a with a cord or something else, they still have to test you for 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 HIV. Adura, how is that program working? 
so far from from what I've heard, uh, I'm not in the medical field myself, so I wouldn't really know the statistics. But uh, from what I've heard, I think it's working well because uh, what, what what the government are actually trying to implement is the program at the, which they're calling test and treat, meaning that uh, when they test you, they find you to be HIV positive, then they immediately commence you on ARVs. So that's the reason why I think they introduced this program uh, program in all clinics so that. Uh, they can help those, to, those that are positive to start medication early because what we, what used to happen then is that um, people used to start medication only when they get sick and they found that it was very difficult to help those people go through. So we ended up having a very high death rate and people dying from AIDS because they couldn't help them. So now what they're trying to do is try to get somebody to be on medication before they can get sick. So from... Uh, what are the, 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 the little that I've heard? I think it, 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 it's actually uh, working out well because if somebody's uh, found to be positive, uh, they immediately commence on ARVs. And if they immediately commence on ARVs, then they will not get sick and they will not end up having AIDS. And then also, if at all their, um, their partner is negative, then they will not be able to transmit the virus to their partner if, when they become undetectable. So I think from the little that I've heard, I think it's, it's, it's working quite well. It, it, when, it's, um, when they introduced it, it was received with a lot of mixed uh, feelings. People were like, no, you cannot force people to stay for HIV. It's supposed to be voluntary and so on. And um, I think quite a number of people even started fearing going to the hospital when they have a flu or a cough because they thought that they were going to test me for HIV. So I, and I think I should think even now there may be some people who are still afraid to go to the clinic because of that. But I think uh, it's, it's working out well because they're actually helping people to start medication early so that they do not end up getting sick and uh, developing AIDS in the, in the process. Thank you, Noah. Yeah, yeah. Th thank you, do uh, Thank you, Roger, for those questions, and thank you, Duba, for I mean uh, answering those questions very well. Yeah. So for our listeners out there, if you have a question, make sure you press one. And I think almost all the mics are unmuted, but if you have a question, feel free to press one, and then we'll be able to hear from you. Yeah. So just to add on to what Duba was saying. Uh, I have some numbers for Zambia. I think this was as of 2017, 87% of people who are HIV in Zambia are aware of their status. That's 87%. And on 89% are on HIV treatment. And 75% of those who are in treatment, their virus suppressed. So this leads to the question, to, uh, just to expound a little bit more uh, from the U.S., context of the U.S. Bella, can you shed more light on the U equals U and talk a little bit about PrEP? What is PrEP and what is U equals U? Okay. Excuse me. So as our colleague touched on U equals U, it basically stands for HIV undetectable is equals untransmittable, which is a scientifically proven concept that individuals who adhere to HIV uh, treatment and are able to suppress the HIV virus to a level where it's undetectable, are unlikely to transmit the virus to, to someone. But the key caveat with this is that it's very important that uh, individuals on treatment who have undetectable uh, viral loads stick to their treatment options, but also at the same time ensuring that they have access to healthcare. And what we find here in the U.S., especially uh, for low-income populations, is at the moment they lose access to health insurance, they tend to lack access to health care, which puts them at a higher risk of transmitting of transmitting the virus to their partner if they no longer have access to to treatment. So it's very important that any program that's aimed at uh, promoting U equals U ensures that any access to healthcare barriers are removed. So issues of cost should not really be a factor for people to access uh, to treatment. So basically, as I said, the concept for U equals U has been scientifically proven. And then for pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP, it basically is a way for people who are HIV negative to start taking uh, antiretroviral drugs uh, with a goal or the aim that it lowers their risk for acquiring HIV. And that has also been proven as scientifically uh, accurate. 
So I know that, for example, here in Georgia, where we have a very high HIV uh, prevalence and instance rate, uh, there's a big push by the state uh, health department to push pre-exposure prophylaxis as a way of preventing HIV transmission because Atlanta is one of the top five uh, cities, as I understand it, that has a high HIV uh, instance rate in the U.S. So there's definitely a big push towards uh, PrEP and also U equals U. But as I said, again, access to healthcare is paramount uh, to both uh, programs. Oh, yeah, th th thank you, Bella, for, for that. So in terms of prevention measures here in the United States, I, for one, I mean, I work for the Indiana State Department of Health as a HIV testing program manager. So I'm very well positioned, actually, to even influence the, some of the policies that we are currently working on because I sort of oversee the HIV program for the state of Indiana uh, where prevention is concerned. So when we talk about prevention, we are looking at uh, encouraging most of our people to go for testing, and testing is free. So if you know you, you are in the state of, I mean, I mean, you are in the U.S., whichever state you are in, please check with your local health department, and or if you put in a zip code, I think it will sort of route you to your nearest uh, point where you can go for an HIV test. And again, the tests are free. So if you get your, I mean, once you get your result and then you, you get a reactive test, a reactive test is one which is positive, and a non-reactive is one which is negative. So when they say your test is reactive, I know most of our people tend to worry that, hey, I may not be in good standing with my immigration here. Would that affect my immigration? So for the Midwest here, there is a lady who is actually was supposed to be part of our show, but uh, unfortunately she woke up with a cold. Irene White. Irene White, she's an HIV case manager working for Cook County in Chicago. So she has helped a lot of Zambians living, especially in the Midwest, because I'm aware of people traveling far from other parts of the country just to come to Cook County in Chicago. Chicago has one of the liberal policies when it comes to HIV. So what that simply means is whether you are in good standing with your immigration status, that will not come up when you go for medication. So they, they will conduct a test, which is usually now we have a, a new testing technology that we are using or recommending, which is called NC. NC gives you the result in just about a minute. It's just a tiny finger prick, prick and then before you know it, the boom, your results are there. So once the test is reactive, then you are linked into medical care. So linking you to medical care, they will simply just ask you simple questions like, uh, uh, where do you stay? Are you working? And things like that. But the whole process is something which is very, I mean, uh, easy to maneuver. Uh, you can reach out to me outside this call, uh, I mean this show, or you can get in touch with Irene White. Irene White, she's, like I say, she's a case worker who has assisted a lot of our people, especially in the Midwest. So feel free to reach out to some of us who are actually working in the field. We'll be glad to help and we'll be happy to assist. Again, this does not affect your immigration status, so feel free to reach out. And the other thing I just wanted to point out is currently the CDC is working on a, 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 a campaign which is called the, the eradication of HIV. So this is only accomplished especially now that we have PrEP. So those who are virally suppressed, you're taking a medication like our, our friend here, Duba. She's taking the medication and uh, after some time, of course, the viral load is, uh, it gets to a point where it's undetectable. So when it's undetectable, and let's say she has a partner who is actually HIV negative, and that person, as long as they're on PrEP, PrEP is medication that pre it's more like family planning for those who are HIV negative. You take the medication so that it prevents you, you I mean, your body, does not catch the, the virus. So those who are HIV reactive, 
once they are taking medication or they are on the ARVs or antiviral uh, therapy, they, once they lo the HIV uh, is suppressed, you are able to even have a child. This is the, the, the program that the CDC is actually working on. This is how HIV is going to be eradicated because there's medication for those who are living with the condition, and then there's medication for those who do not have the condition so that when they are intimate, the virus is not passed on to the other person. So with those two medications, the CDC and the World Health Organization envision a world where HIV becomes eradicated, becomes something, a, a disease of, of the past, something like polio or, I mean, uh, smallpox. So that's how the HIV is going to be a thing of the past. So we strongly encourage our people to reach out to some of us in the public uh, field where we, we, are, we are in a position to influence um, some of these uh, policies, especially in Indiana. And one last point I just want to point out is I am working on a, a campaign where us Zambians, so when, in fact, let me put it this way. Friday, this past Friday, was actually called Black HIV Awareness Day. So most people, they will usually use the word African-American HIV Awareness Day, which falls every February on the 7th. So most of our people, when they hear or when they see the word African-American, they always think it's the other I mean, people from here or black people from here. So in our efforts to improve testing in the state of Indiana, I have noticed that when we put out information like that, which says African-American, most of our people tend to shy away and they, they don't show up. So now I am working hand in hand with the, uh, other people and those in the public sector, public health sector, if you, we, we need more people to push for African HIV Awareness Day, because when you say African HIV Awareness Day, then you know that our people will respond, because when you say African-American, that hasn't been working out well. The Latino community have what is called the Latinx, where they promote HIV testing among their people, and so for us as Africans, we need to have a day like that. So September now is taken as an African Heritage Month, and uh, February is taken as African-American History Month. So most of us, we want to I mean, have that distinction. So that's the little project that we're working on in the background. But the purpose of our show today was to encourage our listeners, those in the corners of the United States, that even if your immigration status is compromised, you, you can still... Uh, get medication or have access to medication, your immigration won't be in the way. So we are strongly encouraging most of our people to reach out to those of us in this field to see how we can help. And uh, any last words? Let's go back to uh, Duba. Any last words to encourage because we are running out of time. Less than two minutes. Any last words for any words of wisdom, Duba? I know uh, for most people, I think the fear of testing HIV positive is that maybe they might not be able to find somebody to love them or they might not be able to have children because they're HIV positive. But I think in my closing remarks, I'd just, I'd just like to encourage somebody out there that um, despite being HIV positive, you can still live a very healthy and normal life. I, I finally got to find somebody that accepted me in my status. We are actually a discordant couple. He's negative and I'm positive. We've been together for six years. And besides that, we even have a three-year-old child who's also HIV negative because now there's what uh, they, they call PMTC, prevention of mother to child. So a person who's HIV positive has a, a, a viral load that is suppressed, can still have children who are born HIV negative and even be able to breastfeed those children even up to two years, just like any normal person that is not uh, HIV negative, uh, who's, uh, who's HIV negative. So my encouragement is 
HIV is no longer a death sentence. It's a manageable condition, just like any other condition, uh, for example, diabetes or um, high blood pressure. So people uh, who are HIV positive should not uh, feel like it's the end of the world. They can still live very happy and uh, healthy lives. Yeah, thank, thank you, Dua, for, for that. And thank you, listeners, for taking your time to listen to this important topic. We all have been affected by HIV in one way or the other, or we know someone. So thank you, ladies and gentlemen, this is the end for sure. So till next time, I think we may have another a segment on HIV, but bye for now. Thank you. We've, we've reached the end of our time.